Hello, everybody. Dr. Lonnie Stewart here from the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. Are you a physical therapy student about to start studying for the National Physical Therapy Examination? Or maybe you're a professor, a program director, or a clinical instructor who teaches DPT students preparing for the NPTE? Either way, we would recommend checking out our sponsor, NPTE Final Frontier, and the community they've built around preparing for and succeeding on the NPTE. That exam and the preparation that goes along with it can be long, tedious, difficult, and stress-inducing, but it doesn't have to be. NPTE Final Frontier has the tactics and resources to help address all of the usual barriers. They even have scholarships to help with NPTE study courses, FSBPT registration fees, and even research opportunities. And if that's not enough, they're even donating to the very first annual HET Podcast Scholarship to be awarded at the end of every year. Go to NPTEFF.com for all of the details and use code HET for 10% off all purchases. Links to both the NPTE Final Frontier and their scholarship options are available in the show notes. And now, let's get ready to learn. Hello, everybody. Dr. F. Scott Field here with an extra special guest today, uh, somebody who's been on the podcast before, somebody who is a friend to the education world, the physio world, the business world, you name it. Dr. Kelly Surrett, back on with yet another book. Got my copy here, Built the Moon. Thank you. Phenomenal book, my friend. I, I have to ask, though, why? Let's start there. Let's start there. I hadn't poked myself in the eye. My Ju Juliet and I hadn't challenged our relationship enough. One of the things I think we took on is that we're both coming to be 50 years old. That's important because we're starting to play a little bit different game than we did in our 20s and 30s as professional athletes. We also just came through a really gnarly pandemic where we got to test how our education and our teaching was, was actually serving people. So one of the things that happened was that we just saw people kind of fall flat on their faces. They didn't know how to self-soothe. They didn't know how to move. They didn't, they didn't really know how to care for themselves. Now, let's pull physio aside and say, okay, health and wellness is a trillion dollar industry, trillion dollars. And if that's our laboratory and that's our teaching hospital, then the truth is ACL injury rates, substance abuse, social isolation, depression, low back pain, choose something, obesity, diabetes, like something you care about and just say, well, how's our trillion dollar experiment running? And it turns out all of those things are trending in the wrong direction. 100%. I just saw an article in New York Times. We expect hip fractures to double by 2050. It seems like the conversations we've been having aren't working the way we want, or we're not having a regular enough dose that those things are working because the world is changing for people so fast. So there's some hypothesis that's not sort of running its course there. And simultaneously, because we've been working in high performance for 10, 20 years, we get to see all of the small hinges that open the biggest doors. And what we have always believed in, and I think this is like, um, I might have mentioned this before, that the highest calling, I mean, E.O. Wilson says that the highest calling of, of science is to serve the humanities. And I really like that idea, but also means that the highest calling of sports and performance is to transform society and transform community and transform our households. And that is failing to happen. So we simultaneously were like, hey, we're, we're discovering that when we work with the world's best athletes and teams and populations, this is our base camp. And simultaneously, we recognize that people may have heard these things before, but we hadn't created objective measures. We hadn't expanded and said really clearly to people, here is a vital sign 
here is an objective, here's a benchmark, and now we can react off it. So if people like 120 radius and great blood pressure, it's not bad blood pressure, but it's also like, hey, let's pay attention to that. We love and should be thinking about measuring things. That's what we do, observable, measurable, repeatable behavior. So why don't we expand this definition of vital sign into the key aspects of physical practice, physical health? Then we can really start to make the case for people coming to a physical therapist, for example, every year to check on their vital signs and if they're below, get some input. Yeah, I love that. And I, I want to talk about the 10 new vital signs here in a minute. And we'll dive into that because I personally have a love for this book. I, no offense to becoming a supple leopard. Great book. No but like you said, very high athlete, high level, you know, optimizing performance stuff. I specialize in geriatrics, right? So this is right up my alley because there's a lot of adaptations in here. There's things that these people should do. We're teaching our students how to help teach their patients how to get up off the floor. Super important, right? So we'll dive into those in a minute, but I do want to give uh, just a brief moment here and a shout out to your co-author, who is just a grade A number one badass. I don't know that people know this uh, or not, but reformed lawyer, right? Yep. Fair. fair. Olympian, right? Uh, well, not Olympian, but three-time world champion. World champion. That's right. That's you, right. You guys, your story is, is actually tremendous. The two of you were both in whitewater sports, right? You were in... Uh, River sports and and that kind of brought you together, I'm assuming. That's right. We were sponsored by Camel Cigarettes at the Camel Whitewater World Challenge. World Championship was this huge whitewater event. Happened in Chile. It was sponsored by Camel South Africa. She was on the women's team from California. I was on the men's team from Colorado. And uh, I remember chatting her up at the side of the beach. And she was going to law school. And she was an interprofessional. And she's a world champion. And I was like, this girl is the future. So I moved from Colorado to Sashi Lafemme, I followed the girl to San Francisco. That's awesome. And now CEO of the Ready State, right? She is. And, you know, one of the things that I think is relevant is that Juliet and I, I feel like the physios and the people who are listening can relate to this, this artifice of the internet culture where like, I have six hours to write in my gratitude journal and meal prep and, you know, and, and meditate. And then I get into my day and we don't live that way at all. We have two teenage daughters. Today's my daughter's 18th birthday. I have a 15 year old. We have, we sit in front of our computer a lot. We work with people. And what we don't have is tons and tons of extra time. You know, even though we talk a lot about fitness and health, like most physios, but we don't actually have hours and hours to do it. What we realized is that we needed a couple things. One is that we wanted to separate exercise and in diet as it relates to body composition oh, out of the conversation around what a physical practice would look like. Some of that is not everyone exercises, not everyone wants to exercise to be in diet culture. And we think that you can become a durable person by increasing your movement and we can expand what that means for people and not just make it about, I go to this one discrete hour in the gym, my booty shred class, and then I'm good. That isn't working. It's, and it doesn't serve my mom. It doesn't serve my aunties and uncles. It doesn't serve my neighbors at all. Yeah. So real quick, what was it like working with your wife on a project like a book? I mean, you've written them before, you know, and, and now you're having to come together and do this. What was that experience like? This is actually our second book project together. But what's interesting is, you know, the dynamic of working with a partner, and there are probably a lot of listeners who run clinics and maybe run a clinic or a business with their partner. We see that a lot in this sort of entrepreneurial PT uh, spirit. 
it seems like taking on a book would be different than working with your partner to raise kids, but it's actually the same conversation. We have division of labor. We need to communicate. Juliet and I, Juliet's the greatest training partner I've ever had. And we've been training together since 2000, racing together, traveling together. So really have good partnership and trust. And there's a few things that we do. We, one of us won't pick up a new sport without the other person, for example. On Wednesdays, usually Wednesdays, we have a feelings meeting where we come together and talk about the business, the business of our family. How's it going? Am I a good partner? What do you need? We have a no defensive policy during that time. Sometimes we need to have a drink in front of us and sometimes we don't. You know, what's interesting is working with Juliet, we've been working together. <clears throat> we started the gym in 2004. So that was our first project together. So almost 20 years of working together means that we have a working model and language. We rather share the burdens and pressure. And then we have real means of turning that off. We love to sauna. We walk in the evening together. We leave our phones behind. We remind each other that we're not just business partners. We are partners in all things. And I'll tell you, it's a lot more, it's really been rewarding for us, but you, you can't go in blind. And if you have weaknesses in your business relationship, taking on a monumental and immensely stressful project like trying to make another New York Times bestseller is, is going to elicit all those things. Really, it's always about crisis and observation. And as you know, running a business, teaching people to, to be independent, you know, so much of this model is you'll never have it dialed. I think we think you're going to nail it, but the, the dynamic model and the all the things that pop up are a feature, not a bug. You have to have ways to be able to manage this. And what you'll see is that probably the people who, have, who are busy and have working families have models that can translate. So working with Juliet on this is fantastic. And her story, she's such a great writer. She was the best brief in her law practice. And she is a badass, as you say. So we're living this, you know, and, and in terms of having a perspective from a man and a woman, I think has been really important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Again, like great tips, great takeaways, great insight for entrepreneurs and those that are, you know, running businesses, especially with a partner. Also, I think it's important for, for those in healthcare to realize that, hey, we can write books. We should be writing books. We oh, should yeah. be using our knowledge and our life experience to educate the general public. That's a huge opportunity. I feel like a lot of healthcare providers are kind of missing out on. And let me jump in and just say yeah, that, please. you know, the original model for the scientific method, Francis Bacon 101, is induction through large data sets. Like, that is it. I'm pretty sure that I had a course in physio school that said expert clinicianship is pattern recognition, right? Ultimately, one of the things that we have the opportunities to see is we get to see into thousands of lives. We get to see into thousands of behaviors. We get, what we're trying to do here is say, we're saying that we're, we're operating a lot of dirty data. I'm a physical therapist. I'm a coach. I'm both of those things, like two gnarly trees that have grown together. You can't tell which one, where one is. But what I can tell you is I can't get to the bottom of someone's chronic low back pain if they're not sleeping, if they're not walking, if we haven't had a conversation about stress reduction and breathing, if they're not eating enough protein and micronutrients. Which one of those things isn't important? And more importantly, which one of those things can you address in 20 to 30 minutes? It may be that we have to start to think differently about our model. And our model is, I need to figure out in my problem list what requires me as a human to be here with this other human. Maybe that's just listening, but I'm gonna need to make sure 
that that intercession change is actually happening. And I give that person a plan to be able to start to think about tweaking the small behaviors that's going to make a better readiness for them to receive the treatment or the plan we're agreeing on. And until we do that, until we get honest about that, it's really hard to understand inputs and outputs because the data is so dirty. Like people are showing up and they haven't slept and they're underfed and they're super stressed. And I'm like, well, I can't tell what's working here. So we have always been on the side of the coach and on the side of the practitioner and provider. And honestly, if you view this, you're like, oh, here's this thing I can say, here's the other 23 hours. You're gonna spend some time with me. I need you to work on these things. You don't have to be perfect, but you're gonna see you're gonna get better treatment if we can begin to normalize some of these other conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Well put. So let's dive into it, right? Built well, to Move, boy. it's available now everywhere. You can buy books, uh, including airports. I love the fact that you call them vital signs, first off, right? Because one of the big movements in physical therapy is, is vital signs are vital, right? Vitals are vital. We should always be taking those on every patient all the time. It just is something that we need to know, right? They're called vital signs because they are vital, right? And so no these, practitioner is going to spend more time with a person than a physical therapist, period. Exactly, exactly. Multiple times a week, several weeks, you know, it just, we have such great opportunities with that, you know, as opposed to a PCP who may see you for eight minutes, once or twice a year. What, what good is that going to do, right? We have a lot more access to our patients, which is why I think we need to really focus on I love this. building that rapport, right? By going all in and listening, being active listeners, by taking vitals, by checking things, by tracking things, by recognizing patterns. I, I Even in skilled nursing facilities and, and home health, right? I've seen a patient that's normal six days and, and then all of a sudden on day seven, they're wacky. They're off the walls, right? And it's like, clearly something's up. This is not normal. And we can like refer them then to the next step and figure that out, right? So I love the fact that you call these the 10 new vital signs, right? I love this. Tell us a little bit about the thought process on these, these ideas of like, hey, here's a bunch of movements that are important. We're going to call them vital signs. The way to think about this is, again, which behaviors, which practices, one are practicable. That means they're practical and you're able to do them every day. Which ones are essential are the biggest sort of levers of health? And what you see is we tend to isolate these things like, like us all, we want to, you know, we're all in on breath or we're all in on walking, we're all in on sleep. We fail to appreciate how the human body and human system is really tightly coupled. No system works by itself. Not only did we try to choose the 10 items that we felt like were reasonable for every person that were expansive, like in the nutrition chapter, for example, we're not talking about body composition or diet. Or we're talking about, let's make sure you have enough of the micronutrients and macronutrients on board so that your body can operate the way it needs to. Whether that's you've lost protein signaling because you're older or you're coming back from an, an injury or a surgery, there's an amount of protein in there that people don't get and it limits their adaptation to that experience. But we're not saying you got to go eat ground grass-fed beef. We're saying, oh, you're vegan, vegetarian, carnivore, you love keto, you're, you know, it doesn't matter. But show us that you can hit to this so we, at least we yep. can begin to understand what's going on. Yeah, that was a problem of mine. My doctor said, hey, you got to increase your protein. I'm like, are you kidding me? I love meat. I'll eat meat all day, every day. And she's like, no, 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 not, not really like that. Like, you're just not getting enough. And I was like, well, I can only chew so much chicken in a day. Like, what, <laughs> no, what do you want me to do? 
And so she's like, supplement it, man. Get some, get some powders, get some shakes, whatever you got to do. And then, so I have, I've started, you know, adding some protein powder to my diet and so far so good, you know? And now for a quick shout out to our newest sponsor, Varela Financial. If you're a physical therapist and you have student loan debt, you got to talk to these guys. What makes them unique is that they view financial planning like running hurdles on a track. And for PTs, the first hurdle many of us run into is student loan debt. Varela Financial will help you get over that hurdle. They not only take the time to explain to you which plans you individually qualify for and how those plans work, but they also take the time to show you what your individual case looks like mapped out within each option. So if you're looking for help on your student loan debt or any area of personal finances, we recommend working with them. I use Varela Financial personally, and they were able to help me lower my student loan repayment from about $1,800 a month down to about $135 per month simply by finding the right repayment plan that best fit me, my family, and our life goals. You can check them out at varelafinancial.com. Link is in the show notes if you need it for reference, and tell them the HET podcast crew sent you. And now back to the show. Well, and what you're seeing is now we've taken an expansive view of saying, hey, look, maybe these super fatty, calorically dense foods like a ribeye, which is delicious, maybe is not the only fuel source. Suddenly I have eggs and egg whites and pea and vegetable and tofu. And right, I can start to expand and give people a lot of choices. And that gives you a lot of agency. And then it turns out you're like, dude, I just am so busy. How am I going to get this in? Let me introduce you to the protein shake, right? Which is such a great way. For example, for us and my daughters, where I sneak in a ton of proteins first thing in the morning, they leave the house with a micronutrient on board and protein on board. And then I'm like, they'll get enough carbohydrate at school. I'm worried about that. But by creating these essentials, what we've done is we've done two things. One, are, it's really difficult to talk about your knee pain unless we talk about your sleep and your non-exercise activity. And Right. So we have half the book is organized around sort of behavioral vital signs like sleep. And we've given clear lines and again, a constellation of behaviors that sort of aggregate around each one of these vital signs. So we have a clear objective measure and then we have movements in there. But what you'll see is that for the last 15 years or so, I've talked in archetypes that there are fundamental bookends of position that we should be assessing or make it easier for me to assess. The shoulder doesn't do that many things. My arm goes up above me. It goes out in front. It goes out to the side. And it goes into the back. That is what the shoulder does. You can bend the elbow and you can rotate, but really the shoulder only does those things. But what we've done is said, hey, we have these fundamental positions of the lower limb and the upper limb. Let's go ahead and make sure that we can start to put in some range of motion assessments under the guise of movement, like I have a hip extension assessment in here. Can you show me in the world where someone is in a mass market? We've made the New York Times. We've made the, the you know, Wall Street Journal. Show me those books where someone's assessing hip extension for the first time. It's never happened. We have something like balance in here because remember, I remember my first two, my first year of physio. Number one reason people end up in nursing homes, can't get off the ground. Number one reason people die, it's 30 to 45% of deaths after a hip fracture. I mean, come on, like if you hip fracture your hip, there's a third of a chance you're going to die. If we can improve balance, improve people's mobility, their ability to own their environment, well, we can really begin to have an interesting conversation. Again, when we start to restore people's hip function, they win the Tour de France. That's a true story. When we start improving people's hip function, 
They also sometimes have less back pain. Their stability is better standing on one leg. It should be that we're looking at these systems, but if we can create a common root language for coaches, for trainers, for people, then the physio can look at the component to that or scale that up and scale that down and begin to initiate much more sophisticated conversations based on a common root language that everyone now understands because everyone can understand this idea of a, of a vital sign. Yeah, I love that. And again, this is all music to my ears, right? Because what you've done in here is not only are there movements and things to consider, right? But there's adaptations in here too for the geriatric population, right? For oh, the yeah. people that I work with, which is like, you know, amazing because it's taken into account everybody from, you know, child to uh, a geriatric person. So yeah, I, I, you really hit on something important here is that oftentimes I think it's easy in a, a busy clinical practice, you can identify some things that will get someone better very quickly or give them some relief or restore function. And oftentimes we can use those as, we can use it as a corrective exercise, as an example. That corrective exercise solves a problem in the moment, but doesn't continue to scale or be useful or be utility. So squatting on a slant board, really useful. We can get a lot of stimulus, a lot of adaptation there. We know what we're doing. What's the world record for squatting on a slant board? Oh, it doesn't exist because it's not done, because it actually ends up being a dead end eventually. You can't walk around on a slant board your whole life. So what we've tried to do is say, look at things of regression and progression. And exactly what you're saying here is that we have key sort of diagnostics built in that we know are going to help people as they project into the back half of their lives. And yet, if you read this book, I would say, ask your children, are they sleeping eight hours? Because if you want to get out of pain, if you want to heal, if you want to grow a body, change your body composition, whatever it is, you need to sleep eight hours, not seven, eight. And that means you may need to be in bed for eight and a half to nine hours. So you can apply all of these things towards a pediatric population because while humans are very unique, the core principles underneath them aren't that variable. One of the key takeaways for me is, oh, shoot, I am the avatar for this book. Like I literally, since dissertation days to current times, right, I've changed my habits drastically because I was eating garbage. I wasn't sleeping at all. I was up late at night work. I was working full time, then working after I put the kids to bed on my dissertation and whatnot, right? And then it got worse as I picked up more hours doing home health yeah. and starting my own business. It just, That's right. and I knew it wasn't sustainable. I, I knew that. And so finally it took me, you know, hitting 40 years old to realize, all right, something's got to change here. Like this is not, you're going to die. Right. And so like the last four years or so, I've slowly been adapting each one of my bad habits and trying to take them on little by little. And it's been working. All my numbers are going in the right direction. They're trending in the right way. The lab values are looking better and better. So like, it's a process, man. It's not easy, you know? And that not, is um, A, miraculous. B, such unusual experience for the average person, typical person. And three, really speaks to the fact that most of us don't have formal training and we will reach for whatever tool, tactic, strategy we need to cope in the moment. And if you're a 20-year-old young graduate of PT school and you're listening to two kind of old codgers talk here, you don't have kids, you haven't had a sick parent, you haven't flown on a overnight, you haven't had running a business where you're, you know, you're cash strapped and you're cash flow. The pressures are going to come. And this is one of the reasons that we talk about durability and capacity and not just longevity. I think most of us who worked in the hospital are like, I'm not going to be 100 years old, but, but in, incapacitated in a wheelchair. That is not for me. I think that 
really helped Juliet and I understand, like, we want to be stealing Corvettes and racing bikes when we're 100 years old. I mean, that really is the goal. And, and simultaneously, what we want people to do is begin to, I think it's reasonable for us often to think that we'll have more time in the future. We'll have more willpower in the future. That is horse crap. The per- time is today. But also what you just recognized is that two things. One is if we don't give people better tools to self-soothe, if we're not the harbingers of better tidings and better ways to manage being a human as a, as a physio who's, who's responsible for the physiology of the human being, people will go and reach for THC, Ambien, Doritos, Taco Bell, sleep, your TV. They'll self-soothe. It's actually been very dishonest that we've said pain is a medical problem. I think physios are the first people to raise their hands and be like, hold up. Pain does not mean injury. It's not drama. It's a quest for change. But simultaneously, we were also said to like coaches and family members, oh, you're not sophisticated enough to handle pain. And so people were like, well, I'm, I'm, I can still do my job. I'm not going to see a physical therapist for pain management. I'm not going to talk to my doctor. I'll just deal with it with bourbon. And that really is the sort of allegory for the fact that we can say, hey, well, yes, pain is psych- complex psychoemotional components, et cetera, et cetera, experience. But there are some things you can do over here that are unskilled, that I need you to take care of if we're going to have a real conversation about untangling this knot. You know, simultaneously, you know, you, you bring up this, this great point that when it gets hairy and we're so stressed, we want to have additional capacity to buffer that. So in athletics, we have this thing called session cost. A game, if I measure my athletes the next day, I can see what the cost of that high-intensity game on nervous system readiness, on arousal, on force production, all those things. So all of our adaptation skills are about mitigating session cost in our athletic population so they can work harder, recover faster, et cetera, et cetera. We can apply that same MO to a young grad student who has a couple kids, who's working his butt off. How do we reduce the session cost so we can come back more intact to our families? And it turns out it's not a one-hour exercise class at all. In fact, that, you know, train is off the station. We have to start looking at where you can have agency and control so that you can actually expand your definition of what it means to be a physical person without exercise. Yeah, I'm glad you weren't able to measure me years ago because uh, it would have been nasty. I was you. What are you talking about? Well, one of the things I love about the book too, Kelly, is you leave us off with a a 21-day challenge, right? And uh, I'm gearing up. I'm ready to start and give it a try and see what I can do. Tell us about the thought process behind that. Why did you give us homework? One of the things that we have recognized is that behavior change is the, the holy grail, right? My case study, my case report, looking at barriers to adherence. I had this, you know, what keeps people from doing what they say and what they know they need to do? It's resistance, it's, it's ad- barriers to adherence. The more steps between you and getting something done, the less like you're going to do it. So if all I have to do is give a busy, crazy person a listicle, here are the 27 things you need to get done. And you're like, when am I going to fit this in? We started to really look at, you know, remember, we're parents, we run businesses, we, say, we, we are average people, Juliet and I. And what we started to look at is, okay, where are people going to have some agency and control? And some of this is our experience as clinicians and as coaches working on these things. And when we started to view where in a 24-hour duty cycle people might have some control, and then we overlay the idea that, hey, what ends up happening is we can change the framework so that people start to 
constrain the environment so they do the right thing automatically, right? I mean, it was the it was literally me doing a session with the occupational therapist my first year when I saw them, you know, constrain the less affected hand in a glove, and I was like, what is happening here? And I was like, well, how can I use that idea of environmental constraint to have fewer cookies in the house so that I don't have to have willpower? I'm just like, look, if I have cookies in the house, no one in my house is safe until the cookies are gone. Like that's, I'll just be straight up, right? I'm like two in the morning. I'm like, oh, one of their cookies in the house. I should, I should smuggle these burglars and kill them. Yeah. So what we can start to look at is, hey, we, we're going to identify places where people have agency and control. We're going to also look at what are the best, our best understanding of behavior change. And when we see that 21 days, people cannot help but be challenged. In fact, for you clinicians listening, we actually made a free companion video course that goes on with the book that you can safely and feel good about handing out to your patient along. If they go to builttomove.com, they send the email, they'll get video drip. We're not selling anything. It's just a companion because we feel like we have a moral obligation to try to have a different conversation around health and wellness, one that's not fitnessy, one that's not about shredded abs and gluten-free vodka, because that certainly isn't working. So to answer your question again, 21 days, as we know, we can begin to really see habit change. It's long enough where people can experience and start to see how they can integrate this into their lives and also practice those moments where they have control. And we don't have to steamroll people with a hundred things they got to get good at. Yeah. I love it. I love it. It's simple, uh, effective. It's motivating. Built to move. Here's the book. Go out and get it everywhere books are sold. Dr. Kelly Sturan, thank you so much for coming on, man. Thanks for uh, having a chat with me. And where can people find you and reach out if they want to follow you and what you're doing these days and, uh, you know, have any follow-up or anything like that? Well, if you want to see what really goes on in my life, I'm not on social media. You can go to at Juliet, J-U-L-I-E-T, Starrett, and follow her, and you can get a glimpse into the craziness of having a couple kids and running a, a business. Not that you don't need that, physio people, but um, you know we're at the ready state, and you know all of our teaching, everything is on the readystate.com. And once again, highlight that there'd be no way we could take this on if I hadn't had a classic physio, physio education. If I hadn't come through a formal process, there's no way I can organize, synthesize, think critically about the problems we're doing today. So people, you have not made the wrong decision. You have made the right decision to be a physio. Again, my whole behavior change and pattern change was because I was educated enough to realize, all right, I see all the wrong things I'm doing. I've got to do something and change it up. So I think, uh, you know, again, I'm blessed to have this education, right? And yes. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of negativity around physio right now these days, and it's uh, doom and gloom on the, uh, you know, internet and social media, but really it's how you leverage it. It's what you choose to do with it. And as long as you, you know, decide that you're, you're going to make something of it and do more and be more. I think it's one of the best professions in the world. So I'm certainly Phys not worried. Physios. This is the, my third New York Times bestseller. I'm not bragging. I'm telling you, I'm just a physical therapist. Get your butt writing. Go out there and let's start to expand our scope of practice. Let's go ahead and say, hey, this is something we can control and change. If I can do it, I guarantee you, you can do it. Yeah, absolutely. Good point. Well taken. And it expands our one-to-one -one patient care model to that one-to-many. Now we're yes. on population health, right? And we're expanding our reach. So words of wisdom from Kelly's Threat. Kelly, thank you so much, man. Always a pleasure. Great to see you, my friend. Well, 
I hope that episode was entertaining as much as it was informational and educational. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our past episodes, we ask you to please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. And please share out the episodes to those who you feel may be able to benefit from them. We also urge you to follow us on all social media platforms at HET Podcast and let us know what topics or experts you would like to hear from in future episodes. And just as a reminder, none of the information on today's show should be considered medical advice. It's simply infotainment or edutainment to help educate our audience. For medical advice, we always advise you to reach out to your preferred medical professionals, and we'll see you on the next show.